Today I'd like to explore a little bit the question, the area of emotional healing. Mm. It's actually a talk I've been wanting to give for a long time, but uh, every time I reflect on it, I realize, God, it's a huge subject, and there's so much to it. So many different aspects and dimensions and approaches. And I was like, oh, mañana. <laughs> so in this talk, can only really, really touch on, on, on some aspects of it. Second reason I was a little hesitant, or I am a little hesitant to talk about it, is because this area, for a lot of people, uh, very understandably, is quite charged in terms of uh, views views and opinions and feelings about it. And I remember in my practice, I actually uh, stopped practicing uh, for a few years in the late 80s because <clears throat> I felt at that time that the uh, difficulties I was experiencing practice on a psychological level were, were not really being addressed by Vipassana practice at that time and what was around in, in, the, in the Vipassana sort of scene at that time. And I stopped and I uh, worked very intensely for uh, quite a number of years in, in psycho- psychodynamic psychotherapy. And if anyone had sort of... And I, because I was working in that area, I had certain views uh, around it. And if anyone had tried to convince me otherwise, I probably would have bit their head off, uh, practically. And looking back, I can understand uh, you know, how, how that was. But uh, I guess the point I want to make is that Really, all I want to do today is to explore this whole area and just see uh, some of its complexity, some of some of the different aspects. <clears throat> and always, always, uh, you know, talks and the dharmas under the umbrella of the question, you know, the Buddha's fundamental question: What is it that leads to suffering? Can I understand that? And can I understand what leads to freedom? So it's just an exploration. Uh, with that question as as a guide. <clears throat> and uh, I won't go into in this talk so much about uh, how to work meditatively uh, in terms of technique in term- when emotions are difficult and uh, it feels like one's uh, going through something very intense emotionally. Uh, there are, uh, of course, tapes in the library. I know definitely one probably... Uh, many tapes in the library that describe that, or, or to talk to a teacher if you feel uh, you need a little guidance in terms of technique. I mean, if we talk about Vipassana practice, uh, the sort of main thrust of the practice is this real intimacy of presence. Okay, and this is what we go on about so much. That something's uh, difficult uh, emotionally uh, there. What are we bringing to it? Uh, what are we bringing to it? We're bringing this intimacy so that we're really connecting with it. We're bringing an openness. We're really touching, touching uh, what's there, touching what's difficult emotionally. And uh, in, in this insight meditation tradition, a lot of the work is, is quite uh, body-based, quite, quite, um, quite in touch with what's going on in the body. So the physical aspect of what's going on is very central to the way of working. And alongside that, this sort of not not getting too wrapped up, too involved in the storyline and the content. So of course it may be there, 
but the way of working in a sort of strict vipassana sense is not to get too involved with that and to bring more of this raw openness, intimacy of attention in, into the body and the manifestation physically. So, this aspect of attention is really, really crucial. You know, it's a lot what we go on about all the time, mindfulness, attention. Something's quite interesting here. When there's a difficult emotion, or uh, an emotion that feels like a pattern, or a very negative uh, kind of set that comes over being, when that's there, almost invariably has a tendency to... uh, swallow up the energy of attention. So when this cloud of whatever it is descends, the, the attention energy is, is depressed, so to speak. It doesn't have the same energy. So to be, this is, has a lot of implications for working in practice. If we can somehow, on the cushion, in the walking, whatever it is, increase the energy of the attention... In other words, make, make the attention energized, very attentive, really uh, feed the attention. Then the energy of the emotion, which would otherwise swallow the attention energy, tends to decrease. So they're basically like this. They're, they're uh, inversely proportional, whatever the scientists say. So that if, if uh, the difficult emotion that's present is a kind of depressive emotion, you know, just down, everything's down and dark and we don't seem to have any energy. This revamping of the energy of attention will then bring the energy level of the being up. Or, if the a difficult emotion is very agitating, very uh, uh, hyper almost, then the, the uh, energy invested in attention tends to calm, to calm that. This is, is very, very significant. Just seeing how much energy is there in attention right now, and can I somehow uh, invest or increase uh, that energy? So, as I said, I want to explore a little bit the views we have around healing. Oftentimes, and it's certainly a view that I, I held for quite a while, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, was that if I just feel my old emotions, or if I just feel the emotions, just being there and feeling it, that's healing. Now sometimes it may be, but oftentimes I don't think it is, that just to feel uh, the difficult will be healing. I think it's rather in the relation, in the relationship uh, that we have with them in the present. That's a crucial factor among other aspects which I'll go into. But it's the relationship in the present that we have with a difficult emotion. So just feeling, God, this is really difficult, it's not enough. Well, maybe not enough. So a lot of what we're doing when we practice meditation is is paying attention to developing, nurturing uh, really healthy and beautiful and balanced uh, relationship with what's there. 
So this relating and presence is something we learn. We learn it slowly and gradually in practice. It's not, and most of us, it really is a, a, a very gradual learning because uh, we, we haven't learned it anywhere else. How to uh, really relate well, how to be present. That's hugely significant because then we're not compounding, we're not adding to the suffering uh, of the difficult emotion. We're not adding to it with the suffering, with the dukkha of disconnection, which is so often the case. Something's difficult goes on. We don't, you know, we'd rather just be somewhere else, just not connect. What happens then is uh, a state of disconnection comes into the being, and that state of disconnection is a state of suffering. We're enlarging the dukkha. So what is very common for, for uh, people of practice to, to realize uh, at, at a certain point or gradually is that even when something's difficult, there can be a really uh, lovely sort of um, wavelength of sweetness just in the fact of the connection. Just in the presence, there's something about just being there, just softening around what's going on, just being open. Whatever it is, is difficult. But that presence itself has a, a really lovely healing sweetness. And this is, this is very, um, very uh, tangible, very sensible in practice. So, can even, you know, grief or something, a uh, very difficult emotion... Somehow we're just uh, opening, being present, being soft around it, and there's a real sweetness there, in, almost mixed in with the grief. Grief actually is quite an interesting feeling in, in, the, uh, in the dynamic of healing. Uh, oftentimes we feel in our life that we're, we have become some, somewhere along the line, somewhere along the years, we have become disconnected, cut off, shut off from, from some uh, part of ourselves. And maybe, also for years, this has been going on without us even realizing it. It's quite common for people to sort of wake up and think, uh, I've been shut off from uh, my playfulness or my kindness or, or whatever it is for years. And in realizing that uh, can come <coughs> quite some grief the grief of that realization. And grief is interesting in that context because it can very much act like a glue. So in a way we're weeping, uh, perhaps for ourselves, for our lives, what has been missed, what has been lost. Um, And the grief actually, though it's difficult, it can work as a glue to reconnect the parts that were disconnected. So in, in just talking about Vipassana practice now, what we're really doing uh, is, or one of the things we're doing, is we're gradually, slowly, developing the capacity to accommodate what's difficult emotionally. And this is usually a slow process. But gradually we, are, we, we, we really feel like we have more capacity to hold and to uh, embrace, to accommodate what's difficult that capacity to accommodate is, is a, 
a really important aspect of healing. Just that, that ability to hold, to be with, to, to embrace. And seeing a bigger picture of what's going on, we're also developing uh, a lot of other qualities in just this presence, this opening to. We're developing courage, uh, developing openness, developing confidence, which is often what we're really lacking in relation to uh, really difficult emotions. We don't have confidence in face of them. Developing the inner resources to be with, to open to them, uh, to ourselves, in a really self-nurturing way. So, to see the bigger picture of what's going on, all these factors are going on, they're all very important um, aspects of healing. And no one, I hope, uh, no one would say that this is easy at all uh, when the emotions are difficult. It's not at all easy. It needs to, to tread this path in this way. It needs uh, kindness. It needs uh, patience. You can't force this. It needs interest in a way. We really need to get interested in what's there, in our relationship with it. It needs compassion because there's suffering there. It actually also needs, if one's talking about balancing the practice, it needs periods of rest. So if there's something, you know, if it feels like oh, there's a lot of grief or a lot of difficulty coming up, maybe old feelings or whatever, uh, not to feel like I need to work with it all the time, I need to be there all the time, I need to keep opening, and uh, will be too much, or can be too much, too tiring. So really, really helpful, really, really skillful to sometimes take the uh, time away from that and just be with the breath, place of rest, or with the metta practice, or a walk in nature. Something that's a rest from what's difficult. But generally speaking, the thrust of, of mindfulness practice is this being with, this being with, this opening to, this intimacy with. And, you know, I think most of us are aware, we, we, we're quite sophisticated in a way psychologically. Uh, we can talk around, uh, psychologically talk around our, our difficult emotions and, and what's coming. We could talk, you know, for days on end even. And, uh, you know, whoever's listening is... <laughs> Um, sometimes that's useful but sometimes just opening quietly just quietly being with just a quiet simple presence to uh, can be so much uh, in a way (coughs) more healing so the thrust of this practice being with what is opening to what is and that means the fullness of life which means what's lovely and what's difficult. So a lot of the agenda of this practice is really opening to the fullness of life. Which includes uh, what needs healing. So generally, you know, we go on and on about mindfulness and sometimes there can be a sense that if I'm just mindful, if I just see the suffering... Uh, that will be enough, that will do it. Uh, but oftentimes we realize, I've been mindful of this, I've been mindful, it's just not enough. It's just not enough. I'm present to it, I'm bringing attention to it, 
um, you know, it's, it, it doesn't do it. Mindfulness uh, is sometimes hyped up to be a sort of cure-all as if it's going to really fix everything. And it's not realistic. Most people, uh, my experience is, most people, when there's a problem in body or in mind or heart or whatever, when there's a problem, the attention goes to that problem. Goes to that problem. It's drawn to that problem. Sometimes the attention is actually part of the problem. And we, we don't tend to realize this. It's quite a, a subtle and deep way. The actual giving attention to what feels like a problem emotionally is actually somehow feeding. I'll go into this a bit more uh, later on. Um, so I very much feel there can be a real uh, skill in you know, skillful non-attending, skillful, uh, I was going to say spacing out, that's not really, skillful <coughs> ignoring, uh, which, uh, in a wholesome way, so I don't mean going to the refrigerator, going, you know, getting a beer, overeating, uh, TV, uh, Valium, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, wholesome, so what I was saying before, uh, nature, meta, friendship, uh, breath, th- these kind of things. You know, really wholesome non-attending. The mindfulness is not enough. It's more uh, other qualities really have to come in. One of them is kindness. Absolutely a crucial factor here in the relationship with what's going on is, is the kindness. Something difficult is going on emotionally. Can there be a kindness for myself there? This is suffering. Can, can, it, can I meet myself in this moment with kindness? In this moment... We could say, that's not who I am. We could say, in this moment, that is who I am. Can I meet myself with kindness? Can I even meet the emotion with kindness? Which means completely accepting that it's there. Completely relaxing any wish to just uh, scoot it out the door. Hurry on out. Hugely important, the place of kindness, and to explore ways we can kind of <coughs> uh, implement and enlarge that in our practice. And of course, wisdom, uh, the, the, the place of wisdom in all this. And the Buddha, when, when I, some of you were here when I talked about um, the Vedana, the contemplation of Vedana, and the Buddha says the strange thing in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness see the body in the body, see the feelings in the feelings. See the mind in the mind. And you think, what's he talking about? And he's talking about don't see self in it. Don't see, I have this emotion, this fear, this grief, this uh, whatever it is, therefore I'm uh, a failure, therefore I'm damaged, therefore I'm a spiritual, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Don't see self-judgment in it. Don't see comparing in it. It's actually quite difficult. But he says right at the beginning of the contemplation, just see it for what it is. Mind in the mind, heart in the heart, we could say. 
actually sometimes that's quite difficult. It's quite difficult not for self not to wrap itself around and identify and measure oneself and, and say, oh, I bet they're in a different place and I'm stuck with this, this is my history, etc. It's quite difficult. But this aspect of kindness, of bringing in, uh, bathing oneself and what's going on with love is really significant in our ability to just see mind in the mind, just see heart in the heart, just see the emotion in the emotion. It acts as a softener. The love, the kindness acts as a softener of the experience and the relationship with the experience. So all that, that's a sort of typical um, traditional Vipassana approach is the bringing of mindfulness and the care of of the relationship to it. In a way, we could say that's one part or one wing of the path. <clears throat> but the whole other wing that exists, uh, like two wings of a bird that it would need to fly, the whole other wing is the aspect of cultivation. Cultivation of what is beautiful. Cultivation of the lovely. And oftentimes, and especially actually in, in our tradition, because we put so much emphasis on being with and, and uh, just opening to what is, Oftentimes, we tend to overlook the, the huge importance of cultivation. So, cultivating practices like metta, cultivating that quality in the heart, cultivating compassion. Uh, samadhi talked about the other day. Cultivating that uh, samadhi, that stillness, that collectedness of heart. Uh, for some people, devotion, opening to that, cultivating that, for some people. I don't know if we can talk about cultivating wonder, but something like cultivating the openness to wonder. Tremendous uh, healing in the cultivation. It's not in the direct, necessarily in the direct working with what's, what's actually uh, going on. But in the cultivation, rather, of the beautiful qualities, enormous power of that. Not not to overlook it and see: is my am I viewing these things as two equally balanced aspects of practice, two equally balanced wings, the cultivation and the being with. When we talk about cultivation, it's not you know really to remind ourselves right from the beginning: it's not, it's never a linear process. Like when I was talking about the samadhi, it cannot be a linear process. It's also not easy. But generally, over a lifetime, we just keep cultivating these beautiful qualities. And slowly, gradually, what happens, as we cultivate more and more metta, more and more compassion, more and more samadhi, etc., slowly, happiness starts to percolate into the being. Gradually, in a very non-linear way. Because these beautiful qualities are... Builders of happiness. They are builders of happiness. So it's quite, I find it quite interesting. Uh, when we do group retreats, and uh, sometimes we do a guided meditation in the afternoon, and, and sometimes we make it a meta, a meta uh, meditation, and then the teachers get together and they say, okay, what phrases shall we use? And uh, there ensues a little debate. And then at some point, someone says, what about the word happiness? <laughs> And it's quite, it's quite interesting, it's quite charged. <clears throat> some, some teachers have the view, we better not use that word. 
And someone said, yeah, we, let's use it. Uh, because I think for some people it's, it's quite a loaded word and it actually tends to push the wrong buttons in people. So maybe, in some people, maybe in our culture it's come to mean, it's come to have quite a superficial resonance. You know, oh, happy, happy. You know. <laughs> you know everything's, you know. And we, but this is quite interesting. I find this quite interesting. Again, if we talk about views of healing, we talk about what's, what's my view of depth of being? What's my view of what it means to go deep? I know that for a long time I had a view that in the real depths is the real misery <laughs> and the, re- the really hard stuff. I don't know uh, that that actually bears out in reality or that it was something the Buddha agreed with. And that's just, I, I don't want to, I'm go back to what I said at the beginning, I don't want to come down on one side or the other with this, I just want to paint uh, actually what's quite a complex and messy picture of the whole thing. Just to question, what is my, if I have a view of depth, what it means to go deeper, is it to uncover more and more stuff that's difficult? Is that what I conceive of as deep? Interestingly, the Buddha actually conceived of deeper and deeper happiness as, as what it meant to go deep. But it's complex, it's complex. But just to see, what's my view? So I have a very good friend uh, who, who uh, was in psychotherapy for many years and working but, you know, very diligently. And, uh, and we would get together and I'd say, How, you know, how's it going? <laughs> How are you doing? He said, well, I think, I think I feel okay today. Or actually, I think I feel a bit happy. And then she'd go, I must be in denial. <laughs> it was coming out of you know this this very um, very lovely sort of integrity and wanting to sort of question herself and I could I could see the same pattern in myself wasn't quite so marked but um, what are we assuming what are we assuming about happiness about suffering about depth about reality and I I also remember in my in my uh, psychotherapeutic process. At some point, uh, feeling really, really unhappy, really, really um, felt like there was such a sort of blockage of, of personality stuff, such a, um, a wrongly made personality, some factors of personality that were just seemingly insurmountable. I'd just been made wrong, you know, probably my parents' fault. <laughs> but there's something so stuck. And then one day, feeling very unhappy, got up in the morning and decided, uh, this was after I just started coming back to the Dharma, after a num- number of years away, and, and decided, I'm just going to do metta, and I would do metta uh, all day. So I got up, dressed, dressed, may I be, may you be, etc. Went, did, had to do some shopping, and I wasn't working that day. Went and sat in the park, went and did this, did that, did whatever I had to do. Meta all day long, shopkeeper, da da da, meta. After about uh, probably three or four hours, <laughs> started to feel really, really happy. <laughs> lovely, lovely happiness come. And this was, because it was so stark, such a stark contrast, this was like just a light bulb going on in my, in my head. And I realized I had been laboring under the illusion, not explicit, unconscious illusion, that 
I could not be happy until these personality things were fixed, were changed, dissolved, rearranged, whatever language you want to use. And it wasn't quite even a conscious thought. I realized it's hopeless for me. I cannot be happy until there's some reconfiguring. And yet here all I just did, just plugged away at the meta, plugged away and plugged away and plugged away, tenaciously, and then happiness. And I realized, gosh, happiness has nothing to do with this you know, idea I have of my personality and what needs rearranging, etc. It actually comes from the qualities that are in the mind, the qualities that are in the heart, in the present. And because it was so extreme, the unhappiness and, and, the, and the happiness and, and the sort of views I'd been in, it was just like, oh. And, and it's actually remained that clear since then. It was one of those rare moments where you just see something and it just remains clear. So the enormous potential of, of what can be developed through cultivation, through, through metta, etc. I, I also remember... Um, being involved in a class, uh, it was actually a class, a we- weekly evening class on, on Meta in, in the States. And at some point, I think it was towards the end of the class, uh, some, one of the students asked uh, my teacher, Narayan, she said, um, you know, I just feel like kind of hunkering down in my own little uh, cocoon of Meta to myself and just, just huddling up there and giving Meta to myself. And she said, is that okay? And uh, Narayan just said, no. And, and it was a very short interaction. I was like, oh, wow. Um, and afterwards, uh, I can't actually remember what, what happened. I think it was just that short. And afterwards, I sort of reflected on it. And uh, what, I, what I came to was that if I just give matter to myself, valuable and beautiful that is, uh, just to be careful because... Too much self-attention, too much attention to self and the problems of the self uh, will actually increase the, the dukkha, actually increases the suffering because uh, in a way self, uh, self-obsession, I mean that's a strong word, but it's too much self-attention. So some, something has to uh, let go of the self-attentiveness. And, and, and spread out to others. So two very important aspects of the Dharma, this mindfulness, this being with, and this cultivation, hugely uh, important. <coughs> but I, I do think that sometimes, it's, it's sometimes for some people at some points in their practice, it may be necessary to work in a more sort of psychotherapeutic way or more psychological way or work in therapy or whatever or in some modality that includes more of that um, absolutely uh, any, and like any path if we choose that path at a certain point like any path that we choose it will have its uh, benefits its advantages and its pitfalls so we can certainly say this of Vipassana one of the reasons I um, what should I say? In in the late eighties, when I was in the sort of beginning years of my practice, uh, 
what was quite common, it doesn't happen so much now, person experiencing difficult emotion, and there was so much emphasis on sort of precision of mindfulness, just, just really look at it and, and really see exactly what's going on. The difficult emotion there coming up, this laser beam of attention would go there and sort of connect with the thing and zap it out of all existence. And the person said, I don't have any emotions. Because <laughs> there was such a, uh, a heightened uh, precision to the, to the mindfulness. There's actually, for a lot of people, quite a hardness came into the practice and a disconnection from the emotional. This tends to be very rare nowadays because there's a lot more emphasis on metta and working in more gentle ways. But that is one, if we talk about possible pitfalls and possible benefits, that's one of the dangers of a vipassana path. But also psychotherapy uh, can have certain, uh, or it seems to me at this point, can have certain uh, wonderful benefits that may not otherwise uh, be there for a person, and certain pitfalls. So one of the things uh, that we may learn in psychotherapy and in working, you know, in dialogue with, pers- with a person and in relationship, that it's hard to learn necessarily so much on the cushion, is the whole skill, the skill that we learn in relating, in communicating. So again, when we talk about healing, what's often uh, what often really needs to happen is more that we're learning skills in communicating, learning skills in relating and in intimacy, etc. Learning skills in setting boundaries. It's not always about just connecting with something that's difficult and sort of going through that and then kind of everything will find its place. And certainly also diffusing negative thought patterns and replacing them with positive, which can also happen on the cushion, of course. One aspect that I felt, I mean, just kind of sharing personally, that I felt I got from working in a very uh, intense psychotherapeutic setting, um, it's hard to put it into words, but it's a sort of, because it was reflected back to me from, from the therapist, a very lovely, uh, loving, and almost celebrating of myself, my uh, uniqueness, my beauty, etc. Now, there's nothing to do with ego and self-aggrandizement, nothing like that at all. More the sense of the way a parent might uh, love and celebrate the beauty, the uniqueness of their of their baby or their child. And somehow. And this is a little bit different sort of take or flavor than a sort of typical meta practice. But to me, that was a real um, beautiful and valuable gift that somehow came out of the therapy. This real, uh, it's hard to find words, but tender and, and loving celebration of myself. Uh, I'm not sure now if it's still in vogue in therapy uh, but the, the whole work with the inner child so this is very related to that uh, I found it extremely useful uh, one might say you know, if you're really gung-ho dharma but isn't that all self-view isn't it all self-stuff but that is completely okay you know, self-view is not uh, bad or even wrong in one level it's just a view. It's a view that we can pick up and we can work in that way and it's completely appropriate. It's completely appropriate to talk in terms of me and you and my history and all of that. Completely uh, appropriate. A lot of healing to work at that level. 
the danger, or the possible danger, is that again we go we go into this too much self, too much self, and the psychotherapeutic process can become just actually have just got mired in another uh, you know spin cycle of of self obsession. There's so much focus on the self and just my process and my 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 my, and this is it's not uncommon, put it that way it's not uncommon so a person might also feel that they uh, and I know that I felt again, just to share personally at the beginning of well I wasn't actually clear why I was even entering therapy but uh, one of the things that became clear was that I wasn't very good at identifying my needs or what I felt I needed uh, emotionally or in a situation or in a relationship I wasn't even good at identifying it or recognizing it, and I was completely useless at communicating it. And so what happened, and I think this really is a real uh, possible benefit, of, of, uh, especially of psychotherapy, is one actually learns to identify, yeah, these are my needs, and this is what I need in this situation, in this relationship, whatever. And then one learns the skill of communicating that. Great. How often, though, might it go over into... Uh, an inner environment of feeling entitled. And again, the self has kind of got a bit too big there. A bit too big. And a person can do a lot of therapy and feel very good about working through all this, but has actually gone to the other extreme a little bit and become feeling quite entitled in their relationships, in their dealings with the world, in their uh, relationship with money, etc. And in a way, you know, there's quite a me culture and uh, it just fits right into that. To see also, when we're working a lot in terms of self, how much, because it's self, how much fear is coming in. So, it's interesting if working in a sort of psychotherapeutic way, um, we oftentimes look back at the parents or the upbringing, and can see, I feel a lot of gratitude, and that's natural, or normal, maybe, there's some gratitude. And there's also this anger, maybe, anger at the parents. Um, sometimes there's fear of feeling one of these. This is, again, this is quite complicated. Anger generally is not very helpful, but sometimes it might be helpful, because it might be what's real and what's needed to be felt. But just to see, there's a a lot of self and self-investment in the process. Am I afraid to feel the anger? Which is very common for kind of spiritual type people because there's such a taboo about it. Or, what I've also seen in a trap that I got, I got into is, am I actually afraid to not feel the anger and to feel the gratitude? Because again, that will be some kind of denial and I won't feel my anger and it's necessary to go through this to purify it, etc., etc., there's all this constricting of fear around the self-view. So in, in, the, in the healing, to, just to see how much fear is there. Am I afraid of this or that? This option or that option? All, all kinds of options. So go, go into, into this, these... Views of the of he, what views of the healing process. This is this is uh, t- 
turns out to be really important. The, the views we have of the healing process. Sometimes, and again, it's a trap that I got into, we, we tend to think, if I just remember the past, if I remember what happened, if I know what happened, if I uncover what happened, some trauma or memory or whatever, or if I realize, oh, I have this difficulty now because my mum did da-da-da, or didn't do da-da-da. And I put this cause there, I put, I put the cause on the parents or, or whatever it is. <coughs> but somehow assigning the cause in the past like that, un- understanding that there would be a healing in that. And I, I felt like, I, again, I labored under this illusion for a long time. And it's not necessarily healing, doesn't necessarily lead to any transformation. I just know something, or I think I know something about the past. So for me, uh, this was actually quite intense. There was a feeling of uncovering a lot of uh, very early memories of trauma and abuse and things like that. Well, that's how I was interpreting it at the time, anyway. And... Uh, and just doing this, a lot of catharsis, a lot of tears, a lot of opening, a lot of even fear in relation to, to going through it. And yet, there wasn't this major healing, some, some healing, some opening, and yet still waiting. And I would, I would think, just one more, maybe the next memory, maybe the next memory, maybe the next knowing, maybe that will be the one. And this sort of leaning forward, and to be honest, and it's a little bit weird thing to say, the mind almost wanting to concoct a little bit of memory. Now I'm not, I'm not, I'm just sharing what happened to me, I'm certainly not putting that on anyone else. But just to watch out where's the healing coming from and what's the whole relationship we're getting into with all of this. So an extremely common view, extremely common uh, in, in psychology, in, in the Dharma, in everyday person on the street is stuff coming up stuff coming up from the past so sit on the meditation cushion and you sit and you're just quiet and still and stuff comes up difficult stuff comes up either memories or just difficult in the body the emotions, the heart, the mind everything is just stuff coming up and some people actually teach and you can hear it or the view in psychology or, or whatever else is, yeah, it's stuff coming up from the past. It's purifying, it's releasing itself. Very common. Sometimes we even hold that view without being aware that we hold that view. So again, just to, <clears throat> in the spirit, as I said at the beginning of questioning, just to unpack what are actually the views I may or may not have about all of this. Am I holding that view? The Buddha was walking one day and came across this uh, guy standing in meditation. I was just actually standing there. And the Buddha said, Hi, <laughs> what are you doing? And he said, I'm standing here, and I've been standing here, I don't know what it was, three days or something. And by standing here and not moving, I'm allowing my old karma, my old stuff to come up, and it just comes up, and thereby I'm purifying my karma. And when it's all come up, and gone through and purified, that will be enlightenment, I will be done, done. And the Buddha said, really? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, how's it going? (laughs) And the guy said, "Um, not sure. (laughs) Oh, how much 
how much have you purified? You know, what percentage? <laughs> I don't know. Oh. How much have you got left to do? I don't know. <laughs> how will you know when you're done? Um, I don't know. <laughs> and then sometimes the Buddha is actually very judgmental. <laughs> and I think, I can't remember the last part of the story, but I think he just went away and said, this is a foolish way to practice or something. Well, those might be my words, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, the Buddha didn't agree with, with that. If we hold that view, it's, it's quite likely that we'll, we'll get pretty fed up of that process. I have seen some people who are still plugging away after decades, uh, but generally most people get fed up and find some other path, find some other path where that makes more sense. And it, it, um <clears throat> So this, this really is quite common, uh, practice or no practice. So I have uh, several good friends, some of whom uh, practice, some of whom don't and have this quite a common sort of, I don't know what to call it, constellation, a difficult constellation inside, of a feeling that they uh, feel at certain points of just really deep abandonment, really deep disconnection from life, disconnection from the universe, as if their very existence was an actual cosmic mistake, that somehow everyone else was meant to be and they weren't. Really deep existential pain associated with this. Very, very deep. Very, very deep. And, and quite common as a sort of uh, constellation that a human being is uh, you know, capable of finding themselves in recurrently. But what's quite interesting is it's almost, almost always the case that the person is assuming that this Abandonment, this disconnection, is a, a constant underneath. It's it's actually going on all the time. It's it's a uh, somehow more real in a way than their everyday okayness or whatever else is going on or some happiness. It's going on all the time, and when they don't feel it, it's because they're spacing out, distracted, or busy, or just not in touch, or disconnected from their emotions. When they do feel it, that's when they're being more real. And that, that view is there and it's unquestioned for, for, long, for decades often, unquestioned. What we're missing with that view is seeing the dependent arising in the present. Seeing that this thing comes up in the present and somehow in the present, when it's there, there are conditions that, that allow it to be present. If there's a fear of it, fear of that sense of abandonment, of disconnection, of emptiness in that non-dharmic sense, if there's a distance from it, that those fear and distance are themselves conditions that feed it in the present. Distance is this kind of disconnection. It's going to feed a sense of disconnection. There may be really strong conditioning factors in the present. So to see, how is this actually being conditioned in the present? So, so all, of, all of this it begins to tie into to the wisdom aspect, the panya aspect, the insight aspect. So we talk about mindfulness.
one aspect is to see this this thing arises and passes and the Buddha says to see the, the presence of something and to see the absence of something this thing has holes in it it has gaps in it it's not the solid block that we think on a large scale and on a small scale to really look and see that impermanence and when it's not there it's really not there see it's not hide, you know it's not hiding somewhere uh, no. It's really gone. When it's gone, it's gone. So impermanence, emptiness. What does, what does emptiness have to do with all this? Emptiness has a lot of different meanings, a lot of different ways we can approach it. So just to touch on a few little strands. Working psychologically in, in the present, we tend to give things a, a solidity, a reality. Sometimes that's helpful. I see this is my structure, this is my pattern. In terms of meditation and contemplation, all that anything can ever be, anything, all it can ever be, is uh, a sensation, an experience that's happening in the moment. All it can ever be is a moment of something. What happens is that self and the view of time glom onto something and we tend to give it a solidity and a reality which the actual experience of it does not give it's all it can ever be is something very ephemeral it's a, a brief impression in the moment an impression in awareness it's, a moment is barely not there and to, to see this it's almost not there so we add self and time and we make a thing we make things One of the ways that the Buddha encouraged uh, practicing again and again is not just paying attention, not just being mindful, but after a certain point, after one's got some, uh, you know, one's got used to being mindful, is then to add a sort of quiet reflection with the mindfulness. One of them was whatever is happening, whatever's arising, is not me, not mine, not self. Sensation in the body, thought, emotion, feeling, whatever. Not me, not mine, not myself. It's really a practice. But just, I wanted to paint this uh, picture, so just to, in a way to tell you a little bit what happens if one really picks up that practice and take, takes it on board. It takes some time. an emotion or body sensation comes up, usually it's difficult. If I reflect not me, not mine, what was difficult, the not me, not mine, the disidentification takes away the difficulty. So what arises is no longer difficult. If we go really deep into this not me, not mine, nothing that's happening is me or mine, not even the awareness is me or mine, things actually begin to stop arising. Or if they're arisen, they begin to dissolve and fade. So I'm just telling you, for the sake of a point that I want to make, what, what begins to happen in very deep practice. Things actually stop arising or dissolve because we're not identifying with them. The person is practicing that way. Where is the purification then? 
if purification is supposed to be this experience of difficult stuff coming up, and I'm reflecting not me, not mine, and either the difficulty goes out or the actual experience stops, where's the purification? How can it be purified? And if, according to the Dharma, to see not me, not mine is actually more real, so to speak, than to see me or mine, then to say, when I'm looking in a more real way, there's no purification. If nothing is experienced as unpleasant or difficult, nothing is even coming up. So to say, when I look in a more real way, in a more true way, where's the purification gone? How can that be my view of practice? Okay, you might hear that and you might say, well, uh, that sounds like you know, you're talking about ultimate truth and da-da-da, and that's all very abstract. And you've got to be, you've got to kind of honor relative truth. And there's some uh, truth to that statement. You know, there's relative and abstract, uh, relative and ultimate, and you have to respect the relative truth. Things come up and they're difficult. But this re- ultimate relative, it's not, uh, it's not an either-or. It's more like a continuum. When there's a lot of self-view, if I'm really injecting my story into all this, and my history, and my parents, and my grandparents, and blah, 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 all that into what's difficult that's coming up, that's a lot of self. If I take that away, but I'm just viewing this is my stuff coming up, that's a little less self. If I'm viewing not me, not mine, that's a little less. Degrees of letting go of the self. And the amount of difficulty, or the amount of stuff that comes up, will, will rather be... Uh, in proportion to the amount of self. How much self, how much self-feeling, self-sense, will is the real amount? How much self-sense, being the real amount, whatever that is, will then show me the real emotion? the real feeling, the real thing that needs to be healed. Who's, who's going to say that? It's, com- <laughs> it's completely... So when we talk about emptiness, this is what it means. This is what emptiness really means. How a thing is, the view of a th- how a thing is, depends on what's there in the mind. What's there, and, and the view is shaping the experience. And you can't say what's real, and that's what emptiness means. So sometimes this, you get another view of emptiness which is more like it's just all atoms and there's just nothing there. When I look for the body, it's just atoms. When I look for my emotion, I just see it's just these atoms of sensation. That's just a view, actually. That's just a view. That's not what real, real emptiness means. So begin to see all this is really, really, I don't know any other word for it, complicated. There's so many, there's so many... You know, I don't know that I can really come to a conclusion with all this. If I look back at my own process, uh, just to share personally, I think, God, I was involved in, in so much uh, creating of the difficult and feeling it as a healing. And yet, and I'm hesitant to say this, and yet I, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have, I wouldn't swap that. <laughs> Uh, I'm somehow paradoxically and mysteriously glad to have gone through all all the years of that catharsis and some of it not even being real somehow out of all that unwittingly creating a lot of stuff there was a heart opening 
somehow other uh, other beautiful emotions, uh, you know, religious feeling, etc., came out of that. I don't know. There's just some mystery here. Uh, as a teacher, I'm even hesitant in sharing all of this stuff about the emptiness and stuff because sometimes, is it too soon to say that to a person? Is it too soon? Maybe a person needs to work in this way. You can't jump too quickly and say it's all empty. Maybe they need to go through all that. On the other hand, if someone's just trundling in the same cycle for years and years and years, and it's just going around in an endless way. The belief in stuff coming up is actually part of a view that will add to stuff coming up. So I just sit there with a the belief, now stuff's, you know, I'm, that's what I'm doing in my life, in my practice, stuff is coming up. Actually as a view, it will, it will cause stuff to come up. So, again, just to, to make sure it's clear, not to say, uh, you know, when there's been trauma, when and some things really need healing, and, and tears and such, completely appropriate, but just, this is, when you really go into it, this is a very interesting area. So the release of stuff may be never-ending. It may actually be never-ending. And, uh, you know, in some Dharma circles talk about past lives, and then you go, you know, you have countless past lives and you're supposed to release all that. I mean, forget about it. <laughs> you know, how long is that going to take? <laughs> um, it may be never-ending if we are unconsciously creating and contributing it, contributing to it, continuing it in the present in very subtle ways with the attention, with the awareness, with the view. In the process of, you know, very uh, earnestly wanting to attend to, to be with, somehow we're actually creating it. We're just spinning it. And it, w- it will be never-ending. Never-ending unless we turn the gaze round to look at what and how we are looking. So when, when the understanding of emptiness go, uh, goes deep or matures or whatever you want to say, you can actually see the past, e- even something of the past, say this or this happened with my parents and my childhood, my education, whatever. Even the past is except, empty of being this way or that way, really. It's empty of inherent existence. It depends on the mind state past with a lot of love looks a lot, of diff- lo- lot different than past with a lot of contraction and misery and confusion. That's partly why this, this aspect of cultivation is really important. When, when the cultivation gets very strong, the mind states move to quite some degree. You can actually see how much the world and the past and everything is influenced by the mind state. And when, it, when we see this emptiness of the past, then you c- one can really genuinely feel a, can I say, complete freedom from any, any sense of burden from the past. There's a very real possibility. There's really no sense that the past in any way is something real or burdensome. So from the point of view of emptiness, what, instead of talking about the release of stuff, what might be more helpful or more appropriate is the release of views, the release of views, 
So oftentimes what's got stuck, what needs healing, is the views we have of self, the views we have of other, the views we have of life, of the past. And they have become crystallized. And as the insight into emptiness just gradually, slowly matures, it's those views that are released, those views. So, as I said, I'm not really sure if there's <laughs> any very clear conclusions from this. I didn't really want, what I really, to go back to what I said at the beginning, the intention was really just to explore some of this. Uh, what I think is more important maybe than a conclusion is can there be in our lives, in our practice, an ongoing honesty about all this? Either way, that might be, uh, you know, manifest as a kind of fearlessness. Can there be an ongoing fearlessness? That might be the fearlessness of opening to what's difficult. It might be the fearlessness of questioning the reality. Can there be this ongoing honesty, fearlessness, questioning, and and the 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 deep uh, commitment to the integrity of that? sit together quietly for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.